investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. We talking about practice, man. What are we talking about? Practice? We talking about practice, man. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode four of the Absolute Return podcast. Now, we're not talking about practice today, but what are we talking about? Rate cuts? That's right. We're talking about rate cuts, man. I am Julian Klamachko. And I am Mike Kessling. So in addition to rate cuts, we're also going to touch on uh, the Bank of Canada and their interest rate decision this week. The interesting story about WeWork and some of their related party and pet project investments. The Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund is now dumping oil stocks. Of course, uh, touching on this Barrick and Newmont drama that seems to continue with different twists and turns each week. Facebook announcing uh, a pivot to privacy. A massive tumble in Chinese exports. And finally, we look at the job reports in Canada and the U.S. Kicking it off with jobs numbers this week, we have quite the contrast between Canada and the U.S. So Canada really having outstanding job numbers. 55,900 in February exceeded consensus estimates of effectively flat. And this comes on the back of a very, very strong report in January of 66,800. The unemployment rate remains at 5.8%. So we're seeing really strong numbers out of Canada. Contrast that to the U.S., which announced uh, only 20,000 jobs in February, which was substantially below the uh, 180,000 as expected by economists. You had the unemployment rate uh, declining to 3.8%, but a really interesting divergence in uh, economic figures there. Mike, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think this that this highlights the... I mean, one thing in Canada is it highlights the strength of the full-time jobs versus part-time jobs. And it's kind of a data point against the popular argument that we're moving towards a more gig economy. In the, this past jobs data, what you saw was that there was actually 67,000 full-time jobs created, along with a loss of 11,000 part-time jobs. Yeah, I really want to stress that you you can't take these monthly job figures as gospel. They're not carved in stone. They're just very, very rough estimates. I call them WAGs, wild-ass guesses by the statisticians putting them together via polls. So it's more important to really look at the trend, perhaps take a look at the three-month average. Putting the back-to-back numbers uh, in Canada, it's the strongest a two-month stretch of job growth since 2012, which is uh, pretty surprising. And then looking at the uh, the U.S. numbers, this 20,000 job gain, which is very disappointing, it comes on the back of really, really strong numbers uh, in January and December. So you got to discount that. Take a look at the averages. And it's really important also to look at the inflection points because those inflection points, rapid changes in uh, unemployment, jobs figures declining, I think is a really good coincident or or perhaps even leading indicator on where the economy is heading. So also with your comments with regards to averages and following the trend, it sounds like you wouldn't really recommend 
creating a short-term strategy that focuses on these specific numbers? Well, look, predicting the economy is incredibly difficult, if not impossible, but it's really important to keep your finger on the pulse of things, uh, keep track of where the numbers are coming in, and each number on its own isn't super meaningful in and of itself. However, helps kind of paint a, a mosaic on, on where we stand and where things are heading. Absolutely. Chinese exports tumbling the most in three years, falling 20.7% in February, which was dramatically lower than the average economist estimate of a 4.8% drop. As a reaction to this news, Chinese stocks sank by over 4% on the day, uh, marking their first trading day in five months. A number of uh, reasons that these pretty bad economic numbers came out of China. Economists are cautioning on, uh, on taking too much out of it, just blaming seasonal distortions around the Chinese New Year holiday, saying that was most of the surprise right there. But I mean, it's hard to argue that this trade war that the U.S. has been waging on China isn't having a pretty dramatic effect on the Chinese economy. Absolutely. And in terms of the Chinese New Year, that is something that is completely expected. And so I don't, I'm not really sure if I'm, I'm buying that in terms of what economists are giving as rationale. But what I would say is that this is a perhaps a leading indicator of a global recession in terms of uh, Chinese exports falling. And any weakness in China is never good for commodities. It's worthwhile keeping your finger on the pulse on this one as well. Uh, really seeing how the Chinese economy shapes up this year. They reduced their, uh, recently reduced their economic growth target this year to 6.5% uh, on the year, which is a 29-year low. So China has been blazingly fast growing on the economic side over the past three decades, but things certainly starting to slow. The trade war definitely having a pretty material impact here. And I think, in my opinion, Trump really is winning. And you can tell by the economic numbers, you can tell by each nation's stock market. In my opinion, it's pretty clear that Trump has the upper hand. Implications here is that China, I think, will come to the table and get a deal done with the U.S. on the trade front. And what, what sort of timing are you thinking for a, for a trade deal? Well, Trump indicated that they would be meeting at the end of March. So I guess we'll uh, keep our eye open for that and see what happens. But as for now, you look at how the market really recovered over the past two, three months since the Christmas Eve low, and the market is really pricing in a trade deal at this point. So if nothing is forthcoming, watch out below. Big news out of Facebook this week with CEO Mark Zuckerberg announcing that Facebook would be a pivoting to privacy. So Zuckerberg indicated that Facebook users would be able to communicate privately using secure and encrypted messaging and ephemeral stories. He stated, quote, it will become a privacy-focused communications platform. But uh, I think the market and critics are skeptical on this one. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I actually looked at this through the lens of Eugene Wei's recent blog post, Status as a Service. Uh, we'll post that link in our show notes as well. But the, this long post, I will admit, has two main principles. The first being that people are status-seeking. Second being that they will seek out the most efficient path to maximizing their social capital. Now, he praised networks like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram because of their scale and breadth of viewership. 
which allows users one of the more efficient ways to maximize their social capital without limits. By definition, a private network or direct messaging platform puts a cap on the amount of social capital that can be earned, making it suboptimal relative to an open one. Now, a more open public network will be a little more popular than a private one because of this paradigm. Basically, what Facebook is saying here is that they think that the paradigm has shifted throughout the years, um, and so they're pursuing more of a private platform. Facebook mostly exists to sell ads in an efficient way. So I don't know how seriously this strategy shift can be taken in, in whole. Yeah, I'm skeptical. The market's skeptical and critics are very skeptical. Facebook became one of the largest companies in the world by harvesting users' private information and effectively selling it to the highest bidder. And some people are thinking that this is just a ploy to get their attention away from the various scandals that Facebook has suffered uh, over the past 12 months. It's constantly in the news. Uh, you had the whole, you know, Russian influence on the election and uh, selling data to third-party apps, letting them access a whole host of private information, and then getting into a lot of trouble with the regulators. So I think everyone's pretty skeptical, and some even going so far as this is just another ploy to entrench Facebook as the dominant platform out there. Absolutely, and it seems kind of like a shiny object, similar to on December 20th, I believe it was, when they announced their new stablecoin that would be offered through WhatsApp. Yeah, it will be interesting to see what they do on the crypto front, but with respect to privacy, Zach, we don't believe you. The drama between Barrick Gold and Newmont Mining continues to play out with pretty dramatic swings being uh, taken throughout uh, this scenario. Now, what we're seeing currently is that Barrick and Newmont are talking about a joint venture, which to me, it kind of unveils Barrick's hostile bid, which I have always been quite bearish on and thought it had a very low chance of success. This is kind of being revealed as just a ploy to get Newmont to come to the table to discuss a potential joint venture on their Nevada assets. And so you can, you can take that and think that this was Barrick's goal all along, seeing Newmont was susceptible uh, to being taken advantage of. Barrick comes along, sees that Newmont is trying to buy Gold Corp. Barrick wants to throw sand in the gears of the deal just to uh, advance their own strategic interests in getting a joint venture on their Nevada assets, in which they, they share with Newmont. And the main goal here is that uh, the companies realized that they could recognize $750 million in annual synergies or cost savings, which would uh, effectively just flow straight to the company's bottom line. Yeah, and in terms of the synergies, that's those are things that in terms of a joint venture. You don't need to merge. You can just have a joint venture for the, uh, the properties that contain the bulk of the synergies. And in terms of the uh, negotiating tactic by Barrick, what it's really doing is trying to close the gap between ownership of that joint venture. So what Newmont is proposing is a 55% majority interest for Barrick, whereas Barrick thinks that they should have 63%. So it really just seems like they're trying to close that gap. I got a quote here from Barrick CEO Mark Bristow saying, quote, we'll consider dropping the hostile bid when we get a workable JV. So they're both at the table currently undergoing discussions I don't believe either of them necessarily want this hostile bid to go through. Newmont certainly doesn't want that. Uh, certain large shareholders, one of which is uh, Van Eck, 
which holds approximately 6% of both companies. They definitely want to see them pursue this joint venture as opposed to the, the hostile takeover. A lot of shareholders in the gold space are really trying to stress the focus on shareholder returns and not just growth to be the biggest, not just production growth, but they're looking for a solid uh, return on capital. As for history between Barrick and Newmont, I mean, they've really been going back and forth on this idea of either combining or having a joint venture for two decades. And But there's a, a long history of hostility uh, between the management teams. We've seen that in the past, and who knows where things will go. Perhaps they are able to settle it. Another really stunning U-turn in this whole drama is it was unveiled that um, Bristow, the Barrick CEO, when he was ahead of uh, Rangold prior to its merger with Barrick, he actually proposed a deal with Goldcorp, stating that they had uh, world-class assets, I believe he said. And now contrast that to him just disparaging Goldcorp uh, in his criticism of Newmont's deal. So it's uh, you can tell egos are involved, and it's uh, it's a war of words. But I mean, it's kind of tough to to believe anything of what these guys say in the press. Meaning, you know, and and behind the scenes, what they previously said is completely the opposite. Absolutely. And in terms of a war of words and shareholder value, one of the things that was pointed out that since John Thornton became uh, president at Barrick that their underperformance has been in dollar terms about $12 billion, while he has taken home about $65 million in compensation, which is something as, a, as an executive uh, definitely looks, looks negative uh, as well, something that was pointed out. Although there may not be value to shareholders in a merger between the two companies, there's certainly a lot of value for investment bankers. It's estimated that the fees would be around $70 million on one side, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, really fun situation to watch. We'll see how things proceed. But my call is that the hostile bid definitely won't happen. I think it'll be unsuccessful. Barrick will continue to push for a JV. I think that's the most likely scenario, and then we'll we'll see if it happens over the next month or two. Norway's $1 billion sovereign wealth fund is ditching oil stocks. That's right. They just announced that they would be phasing out their investments in oil and gas producers. However, they will continue to invest in companies, oil companies that are developing renewable energy businesses. So the reason that they are making this pretty dramatic move, and I say dramatic because Norway's sovereign wealth fund effectively got all of its money from oil production, of which they, uh, they produce a lot offshore. So they indicated that they would, quote, reduce the vulnerability of our common wealth to a permanent oil price decline. I mean, you got to take that with a grain of salt. They indicated that climate change is an important risk factor. They did phase out coal stocks in 2015. Certainly, I think this has an ESG bent to it, but I, I really wanted to note two things. Number one is when you see a move like this, which in my opinion rings the alarm bell of forced selling, where a wholesale decision to sell investments irrespective of price or valuation, I think that could present an interesting opportunity to other investors willing to buy those assets on the cheap. So when you have uh, for selling, where they frankly don't care about price, they just kind of sell for whatever they can get. I think opportunistic investors should definitely take a look in that scenario. 
The other thing that I wanted to mention is that uh, in the announcement, they indicated that they will no longer invest in firms that are classified by index provider FTSE as being in the energy exploration and production sector. That really goes to show you the tremendous power that index providers have where uh, a massive billion dollar fund will just scratch an entire sector, sell everything that an index provider classifies into that sector. So I think that was pretty, uh, pretty exceptional there. Absolutely. And in terms of the, the E&P divesting of E&Ps, they are still investing in integrated companies. So there still is an E&P aspect to their investments, which is a little a little bit interesting. Uh, the other aspect is that last month they actually made a move to bring their ESG investing in-house in order to save costs. Now, they decided not to cut this mandate, despite the fact that the allocation has been underperforming the broader market by about 3% annualized over the last eight years. So I guess my question to you, Julian, is so for a fund like Norway Sovereign Wealth Fund, are social concerns more important to them than investment returns? I think that's the trend that we're going to see much more of coming into the future. Uh, the citizens ultimately control sovereign wealth funds. And, and so if, if the people want to see a more environmentally friendly asset allocation, then they're going to have to sacrifice returns to get that. I believe the more investments that you eliminate, Ultimately, that will end up with lower investment returns. So it's a conscious choice that they're making, and it appears that that is the direction that they're moving. Uh, in terms of size of this divestment, oil companies currently account for 1.2% of the fund, which is $7.5 billion that they're going to pivot out of in the near to medium term. So look forward to that and see if you can pick up any oil companies on the cheap. Wanted to highlight an article this week in the Wall Street Journal about WeWork, the office space company that now apparently does a lot more than just leasing office space. WeWork was last valued at $47 billion, so certainly a, a unicorn, highly valued in the private market. It has raised more than $9 billion from investors, including SoftBank's massive vision fund. And in a clear indication that they've raised way too much money, the Wall Street Journal revealed that they've been investing in all sorts of different disparate companies that really have nothing to do with office leasing or what WeWork's going to do. I mean, they bought a, a private jet for the CEO. They've been investing in pet projects of his that entail uh, wave surfing, surfboard company, I think, and, and even some health food companies. Uh, uh, they did a school when they couldn't find a school good enough for their kids. So him and his wife took uh, company funds and, and invested in a school, I believe. And they're doing all sorts of kind of weird acquisitions. They bought an SEO and marketing company, Conductor, for $126 million, And they also bought the website Meetup for $117 million. So certainly a case of, uh, I don't even know if you'd be considering it a startup when they're valued $47 billion. But a startup raising probably too much money that they know what to do with, certainly more than they need to invest in their core competency, their core business. And so it'll be uh, an interesting training day if this company was public. Perhaps they're coming public soon and short sellers could be salivating at the revelation that uh, the corporate governance is not looking too good here. Mike, what are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. so in terms of corporate governance, uh, you mentioned the VC investments, but also they came under scrutiny a couple months ago when their CEO was actually selling his private stock of WeWork to purchase 
office buildings that were then leased back to WeWork and earning uh, millions in the process, really. And in in terms of the actual amount of stock that he was selling, the Wall Street Journal quoted it to be in the millions as well, uh, perhaps even the hundreds of millions. So this is just kind of the shady corporate governance that we're seeing. And it's not something you typically see when there's large institutional investors invested in a company like this. But Mesuyoshi Sun is has famously invested in Alibaba after only one meeting. Yeah, I mean, some major red flags here from a corporate governance standpoint. They're doing some crazy stuff where they're investing their cash. And in my opinion, they really have a very little competitive advantage. I see competitors cropping up all over the place. I mean, get some office space and lease it out to startups. Uh, People think that they're highly exposed uh, to a cyclical downturn they think that WeWork will be the first to go. So we'll see if WeWork goes public shortly. I mean, they've discussed IPO plans. And I think with these red flags popping up all over the place that short sellers should be salivating at the prospect of WeWork coming public soon. Yeah, really, they are a startup, but it's an old world business. It's really just subleasing office space with really great marketing. And as well, in terms of the VC investments, you know, perhaps SoftBank just thinks that uh, uh, we work can in, invest better in startups than they can. Yeah, who knows? Bank of Canada out this week with an interest rate decision, unsurprisingly, keeping the benchmark rate steady at 1.75%. No one was really expecting for a hike or a cut. So Bank of Canada acknowledging that it was surprised by how abruptly the economy is decelerating. On the last podcast, we talked about a myriad of issues in Q4 that really caused the Canadian economy to slow to a crawl. I believe it was 0.4% annualized growth in December. You know, the people are talking about the R word recession. That's a very close to negative growth and certainly has the Bank of Canada nervous uh, on a number of fronts. Um, so we talk about reasons on on why the economy is slowing so much. And, and so the, the bank noted such factors as uh, high borrowing costs, which we talked about last time. They noted the, the wealth, wealth effect on cooling housing prices. People can't treat their home equity line of credit as a piggy bank anymore because their, home, their homes aren't going up in value anymore. Uh, so they can't get additional uh, purchasing and spending power out of uh, their home equity. And lastly, they also indicated that Canadians are becoming more cautious on their spending. And as we previously discussed, the the rate hikes, uh, the Bank of Canada ultimately took the benchmark rate from uh, 0.5% to 1.75% over a couple of years. And that uh, it doesn't seem like much, but it seems to be ultimately having a pretty dramatic effect on the Canadian consumer here. What are your thoughts? Yeah, something that we discussed earlier in the podcast was the strong jobs number. Now, perhaps the expectation is that consumer spending will grow in the second half of the year once this jobs data gets baked into consumer spending. And what I really think it's coming down to is flexibility in terms of policy for the Bank of Canada. And one area that they can maintain flexibility is in lowering the neutral interest rate which is currently at 25 to 3.5%. So credibility is always a major concern for central banks. And just weeks ago, the head of the, sec- of the Bank of Canada was discussing increasing rates where lowering the neutral rate 
will actually allow them perhaps maybe to just do one more rate raise and uh, and leave it at that as opposed to a couple more rate raises. Yeah, I wanted to clarify what the neutral interest rate is. They believe that the rate at which the benchmark rate would make the economy balanced. And so they they showed that uh, this neutral interest rate would kind of be at the peak of a rate hiking cycle. Uh, previously, they indicated uh, that the current range of this neutral rate is 25 to 3.5%, and the benchmark rate is at 1.75%. So that implies at least three more rate hikes until the Bank of Canada views interest rates as being neutral. But many economists are now thinking perhaps the Bank of Canada needs to lower that neutral interest rate. The implications being if they lowered it from 2.5 to 3.5 to say 2 to 2.5, that implies that there would be perhaps just one more uh, interest rate hike. And if they do in fact lower the neutral interest rate to sub 2, perhaps this whole rate height cycle is totally done and next up, we'll see rate cuts. And one other aspect is that usually the Bank of Canada doesn't like to diverge too much from the Fed in the U.S. So the optics of doing rate hikes while the Fed is staying put is something that typically the, the Bank of Canada refrains from. Yeah, it also depends on where the loonie's at, the Canadian dollar. If Bank of Canada is hiking while the Fed is not, then we'll see the, the loonie uh, appreciate in value, and and that's not uh, that's not good for many Canadian companies. So I think the Bank of Canada really likes managing managing uh, currency rates. Uh, so in terms of them hiking while the Fed is not, I mean, forget about it. It's just not going to happen. Now getting to listener questions, Mike, what do we have on bat here? So our question is. What is your outlook on interest rates? So now we're going to be talking about rate cuts. And as you heard at the start of the podcast, shout out to one of the best basketball players ever, Alan Iverson, talking about practice. Well, we're not talking about practice. We're talking about rate cuts, man. So I'm, I'm pretty excited to get into it. We're just talking about the Bank of Canada rate decision. I wanted to note um, a quote from the central bank here. They indicated that, quote, the outlook continues to warrant a policy interest rate that it was below the neutral range. So they're pretty much saying they are done raising rates for the time being. I like looking at uh, what the market is pricing. And so there's a futures market that uh, assigns probabilities to future rate hikes and rate cuts. Uh, I have the data from both Canada and the U.S. And talking about Canada later this year, the market's seeing a 0% rate hike probability. And they're actually saying uh, 11.5% chance of a rate cut by the summer in Canada, which would be pretty significant. I mean, a rate cut would imply that that the cycle is over and probably more rate cuts following that. Now, if we go to the U.S., looking out all the way to the end of 2019, the market's pricing in a 0% chance of a rate hike and over a 20% chance of a cut here. So, I mean, the Fed really did a U-turn ever since the market tanked in Q4. They really have their eyes on the stock market. They're concerned about, uh, you know, financial tightening, tightening of financial conditions. The Fed chair really walking back his previous comments that they would be mechanical in raising rates. They're raising rates, uh, you know, 0.25% 
all the way from they started near the bottom at zero to zero point two five percent a number of years ago, and they're all the way up to what two to two two and a quarter. And so they are perhaps done their rate hiking cycle as well. And let's talk about implications. Well, if you have a variable rate mortgage. If you have a line of credit or perhaps uh, even some auto loans, they're all priced off of uh, variable rates, prime rates, which are priced off the benchmark rate. So if you have any sort of floating rate debt, uh, just you can expect that to not be going up in rate anytime soon, at least 2019. I believe that's firmly off the table. We won't see any rate hikes for the rest of the year, if not this entire cycle. From an investment standpoint, what are some ways to play that? That in terms of that thesis? I mean, if you look at where rates are, you know, short-term rates kind of around 2% and then 10-year is, is uh, still sub 3%. And so if you believe that those are going to stick around for the long term, then I mean, stocks are cheap here. What's the S&P at? Uh, 16 times earnings, forward-looking earnings. So that's a pretty decent earnings yield. And if you compare that to long-term bond yields, I mean, it's uh, kind of the the best shirt out of the, di- out of the dirty laundry, right? You got to invest in something. I think stocks are much more attractive than long-term bonds here, especially if you think rates might be going up. But even if they're not, then uh, I think stocks are the way to go. You just got to kind of uh, take the pain of uh, additional volatility. But uh, if you're a long-term investor, then I think you should be fine here. That does it for episode four, ladies and gents. We're talking about rate cuts. We're talking about rate cuts, man. So that's just a shout out to one of the greatest basketball players of all time, Allen Iverson, and is talking about a practice. So if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to leave us a review on Apple iTunes. Subscribe. Of course, we love getting your questions. So reach out on Twitter or flip us an email. Uh, Let us know any questions, what you want us to talk about on the podcast, and we'll see you next week for episode five. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast, Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.